0: This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. On August 23rd, 2023, India became the fourth ever country to successfully land a spacecraft on the moon.
1: Currently, only two engines are now being fired. And uh, we are nearly at zero velocity, vertical and horizontal. We, are, we were hovering and now we are approaching the moon's surface.
0: And when it touched down, the Chandrayaan-3 lunar lander made history as the first ever craft to land on the moon's South Pole region.
2: India's successful moon mission is not just India's alone.
0: Prime Minister Narendra Modi speaking at the end there. Chandrayaan-3's rover, Pragyan, spent two weeks exploring the moon. It beamed pictures back to Earth and tested the temperature and makeup of the lunar soil. Then researchers put the rover to sleep to try to protect it from the freezing lunar night. They're still waiting to see if it will wake up. We're in the midst of a burst of interest and renewed interest in lunar exploration. In fact, there are more than 250 planned trips to the moon in the coming decade, according to a report from space industry research companies like NSR. Just days before India's success, Russia tried to land its spacecraft, Luna 25, near the moon's south pole, but Luna 25 crashed after losing communication with Earth. China's working on a new moon rover for 2026 and says it will get astronauts there by 2030. And the U.S. hopes to send humans back to the moon on its Artemis II mission scheduled for late 2024. And then there are the private companies.
2: We partner with different companies who make lunar rovers. So if if a customer needs uh, mobility, we can put their payloads on a rover and then deliver that rover to the moon. We also have a lunar hopper that we can take to the surface, and that can sort of fly many kilometers from the lander and do exploration.
0: Ben Bussey is the chief scientist with Intuitive Machines. His company contracts with NASA and others.
2: The goal is for there to be, if you like, a lunar economy, to bring the moon into our economical sphere of influence.
0: So... What's on the moon that everyone is so excited about? Short answer, a lot. Ice in lunar shadows could be a source of water. Rare earth metals like scandium, yttrium, and (laughs) lanthanides I'll come back to that one later, could also be used for smartphones, computers, and other technology. Bussy says the lunar soil, also known as regolith, is also full of oxygen.
2: If we can extract the oxygen there, rather than have to take all the oxygen with us from Earth, Not only could that oxygen be used for, you know, obviously for life support for crew, but oxygen is also, you know, a rocket fuel. So we could start to make our own rocket fuel on the moon for launching back to Earth or elsewhere.
0: Researchers like Jehan Tanga at the University of Arizona are already building prototypes of swarms of moon mining robots. Tanga is also researching how NASA could use sandbags to build things like warehouses on the moon.
3: You would bring fabrics and cloth from Earth. You could embed them with microelectronic sensors. Um, And the idea here is to build smart building blocks using the sand and gravel or whatever mixture that you have there. And from there, we can now start to build semi permanent structures.
0: And then there's the big one. A resource considered so valuable, such a game changer, that when people talk about it, it sounds like the lunar holy grail.
1: It's the most valuable thing in space. Even if you had uh, piles of diamonds on the moon, it wouldn't be worthwhile to go get go get them.
0: To find out why this resource is more valuable than a crater full of diamonds, you'll have to stick with us because we're going to talk about that a little later in the show. But because this frenzy of desire for lunar resources raises an even more important set of questions first, we're going to talk about those. I mean, let alone the issue of should humanity even be mining the moon? I'm talking about questions like who gets to dig where? Who gets to use and profit from those lunar resources? Or... Put another way, who owns the moon? Now, one of the greatest joys of this job that I get to experience day in and day out is we get to talk to experts in all manner of fields that you wouldn't even imagine, including space law. Well, Michelle Hanlon is a space lawyer and the executive director of the Center for Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi's law school. She's also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Space Law and co-founder and president Of For All Moonkind, a nonprofit focused on protecting human cultural heritage in all of outer space. Uh, Michelle Hanlon, welcome to On Point. Magna, hi, thanks so much for having me here. Okay, so we'll get to the moon in a second, but I have to start by asking
3: what got you, uh, what made you fall in love with this field of space law? So, Magna, of course, I, like many, many children, wanted to be an astronaut when I grew up. (laughs) Right there Uh, with you. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, then uh, calculus hit me right in the face. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. And I went on to be a a lawyer, a business lawyer for about 25 years. And uh, my children rekindled my interest in space. Um, My son wanted to mine an asteroid and asked me if I could figure out the law for him. And I, I uh, took a career switch at the ripe old age of 50 and went back to law school to earn a specialized degree. That is amazing. Maybe we should ask you about asteroids because we just brought back an <laughs> asteroid sample, didn't we? <laughs> exactly. Um, and so exciting. I mean, to just think about the approaching a, a spacecraft that's been on another celestial body that we can't even basically see um, and and opening it up and finding whatever.
0: Okay. And did you come up with a sort of a body of law for asteroid mining for your son?
3: <laughs> so we do. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say, space is not the wild, wild west. We do have law. And there is a very, very, the foundational concept of the law is that space is for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, it belongs to all, it is the province of all humankind. And so the question is um, not so much who who does space belong to? Can you do it? But what are how do you how do you make it fair um uh, what you want to do if you mine an asteroid or mine the moon? Um, how do you make it fair for everybody else on earth? ok.
0: I have to say, I admire how beautifully you refocused our conversation on the matter at hand um before I keep asking you about, uh... Uh, you wanting to be an astronaut. So, so back to the moon here. Actually, l- literally back to the moon for, you know, the, for the United States. Um can you first tell me uh, Michelle, what do you think of this renewed sort of flurry of ambition, not just from the United States, but from several other countries in terms of aiming for the moon not not only as uh, a sign of, you know, national prowess and pride, but as a place for, you know, potential future uh, space missions and resources.
3: I couldn't be more excited right now, Magna. I mean, this is this is the renaissance of of humanity yet again. We're standing on an incredible threshold. Um, we're we're getting to the moon, and it's not just to mine resources to make our phones work. It's it's a gateway to the rest of the universe. On the moon, which has been our loyal neighbor for our entire existence, we're going to learn what it's like to live and work in space. We're going back to the moon to stay. So that we can understand how we can uh, access the rest of the this wonderful space that we live in, that we've we've not been able to even begin to tap the resources of. And again, it's not I, I, it's not even about diamonds; it is about water. But um, it's really uh, the the opportunity that we can't even imagine at this point. we, we how it's mind blowing mm-hmm. what could be out there.
0: Mm-hmm. And tell me more. About the significance of the fact that we're not just talking about the United States and Russia and a kind of Cold War race, right, to the moon, which is what it was in the 1960s. But that now we have China and India
3: uh, and also, of course, a whole slew of private corporations in the mix as well. Game-changing. I want to be very clear, though. We're still in a race. Um, This is just a very, very different race. Back in the 60s and 70s, it was about prestige, as you said. You know, go, come, the the democracies do it better. No, the communists do it better. We got to space first. We're really looking now at laying the foundation for the future. And when I say it's a race, um, there is prestige involved, of course, but because the law is unsettled, Um, I'm not suggesting any one country or company is going to claim the moon as theirs alone, but what they do, the first movers are going to have a large say, a huge and substantive say in how we move forward, how we behave towards each other on the moon and elsewhere in space. Hmm. Okay,
0: so we probably should get into what this unsettled body of law looks like right now, because you know, quite frankly, I was even surprised to know that there was A treaty already in existence, um, let alone perhaps other um, uh, pieces of regulation or ideas that we could look to. Can you just name, we've got only just a couple minutes before our first break, but give me the name of what you would think is the most important um, body of law or
3: treaty regarding the moon right now. The Outer Space Treaty, uh, ratified in 1967, is our Magna Carta of space law. It is It provides all of the foundational frameworks for um, all activities of countries in outer space. And what's really fascinating and people don't realize is there's actually a, an entire UN agency, an Office of Outer Space Affairs, um, which helps uh, delegates of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space meet three times a year to discuss space law and see how we can evolve it. Mm. So can you give me just
0: a quick uh, headline on what the Outer Space Treaty asserts in
3: terms of countries' claims on uh, different aspects of space? Article 2, no state may claim sovereignty over any place in outer space, over any celestial body, the moon, anywhere. Nobody, no state, no country, not China, not the U.S., not India can go up to the moon and plant the flag and say this is ours. And the Outer Space Treaty is still in effect? It is, in effect, and uh, it's signed by all of the major spacefaring nations.
0: Okay. Has it been updated since
3: 1967? <laughs> that is, that is a, the greatest question. No, it has not been. We have had a lot of what we call soft law resolutions. Um, it's been really hard to find agreement, um, formal agreement, but we sort of have all of these, like, handshake agreements, like, okay, we're all going to do this this way. Sure, sure. Uh, But it it is time, not for an update so much, but for a new treaty to talk about how we're going to uh, protect and share and rationally use the resources we find on the moon. Okay, so when we come back a little later in the show, we'll talk about what uh, a
0: new agreement like that might look like. Today, we're taking this uh, big picture view of humankind's next leap into space, which would be back to the moon, and what that means in terms of... Who would have the right to extract the resources that many people see the moon can uniquely provide? We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. Five consecutive episodes right here, so make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and Michelle Hanlon is with us today. She's executive director of the Center for Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. She's joining us from Oxford, Mississippi. And Michelle, if you just hang on with me. Uh, For a little bit, I want to uh, make good on a promise that I gave listeners in the first segment of the show, and that is, what's the answer to the question of what could be more valuable than a moon crater full of diamonds? Well, the answer is helium-3. All right, well, what is helium-3? Its proponents say that it could be the secret to clean nuclear power on Earth because it's a key element in a very specific fusion reaction. Okay. So typically when people or experiment researchers have tried to uh, fuse helium, they create energy by fusing two substances called deuterium and tritium. But with the helium 3 reaction, scientists would fuse deuterium and helium 3, or in other words, helium 3 with more helium 3. Gerald Kolsinsky has spent decades studying this possibility.
1: The dehelium helium 3 reaction produces about 30 times less neutrons than a DT reaction of the same power level. And that really reduces the radiation damage and activation problem by about a factor of 30. That's big. If we wanted to go to helium-3, helium-3, there's essentially no neutrons. It would be a nuclear process with no nuclear waste. That's really the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow.
0: Kolsinski is a professor emeritus of nuclear engineering at the University of Wisconsin and former director of the Fusion Technology Institute. He estimates that there could be a million metric tons of helium-3 on the moon, which he says could be enough to power the Earth for a thousand years. That, of course, makes it virtually priceless.
1: Helium-3 on the moon is worth $4 billion per ton if used on the Earth to make energy. It's a, it's the most valuable thing in space. Even if you had uh, piles of diamonds on the moon, it wouldn't be worthwhile to go get go get them. But to be clear,
0: nuclear power using helium-3 fusion is not currently commercially available. There are no nuclear power plants today that use fusion of any kind. However there have been some promising experimental reactors that are using helium-3. And Kulsinski says the idea still has enormous hurdles to clear because helium-3 fusion reactors right now still have not produced more energy than it takes to simply run them. So thus far, a net loss of energy. That's that major hurdle we're talking about. But nevertheless, researchers and big companies are confident that helium-3 could be a transformational technology. In May, Microsoft signed an agreement with the company Helion Energy, and the goal is for Helion to plug into Washington State's grid by 2028 and generate at least 50 megawatts of helium-3 fusion power. Now, in terms of harvesting the actual helium-3 from the moon, Gerald Kulcinski says we already know how. You heat up the moon's soil, called regolith.
1: You heat it up to about 700 degrees centigrade by solar energy and the helium-3 comes out, and and you can separate that. And, oh, by the way, for every ton of helium-3, you get on the order of 10,000 tons of life-support material, water, oxygen, nitrogen, and so forth.
0: Kolsinski isn't sure he will see a successful commercial helium-3 nuclear fusion reactor in his lifetime, but he does think he'll see countries and companies start using the moon's water, oxygen, and nitrogen. If and when countries begin mining helium-3, Kulczynski says he hopes they will
1: collaborate. A UN type of an organization, it probably wouldn't be the UN, but something like that, would uh, try to uh, have the benefits of harvesting helium-3 from the moon at least equitably uh, spread out over the Earth. Not on a one-to-one basis, because somebody's going to have to pay a lot of money and a lot of effort to get there and they should be rewarded for that. But some benefits should come to nations that can't go to the moon. That was Gerald Kulcinski,
0: Professor Emeritus of Nuclear Engineering at the University of Wisconsin and former director of the Fusion Technology Institute. Now Michelle, again, just to, to make it clear, this isn't yet a commercially viable technology, but the very fact that... Uh, there seems to be at least this notion that helium-3 could produce clean fusion, if I could put it that way, uh, and its value is so high. You can understand why a lot of countries and companies are kind of salivating at the chance to at least see if we can get helium-3 off the moon. But can you tell me what um, helium-3 provides as an example? Uh, In terms of what's missing from extant space law that would help guide those same countries and companies to figure out how that, how a fair
3: uh, mining process would happen. So of course, Magna, when you think about it, what an exciting prospect! And I think um, you know, thank goodness for dreamers and scientists who can make dreams come true like this. This is going to take a long time, though. And what we're talking about is this: we have this treaty which states that you know no ter- no country can claim territory. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes well what happens if a country wants to mine you're kind of claiming territory by setting up a mine, aren't you? And then we have another provision of that same treaty this Magna Carta of our of our space law which says everybody has free access to all areas of all celestial bodies. Well how are you going to have a mining operation if you're going to have other rovers and um, other p- countries traipsing through your operations? The moon is a very delicate environment in that uh, there's no gravity, and so that very regolith that we're hoping to extract all these resources from um, is very sharp, um, like sandpaper, gritty, and uh, there's no gravity to tamp it down. So if you go within, you know, a kilometer of another operating piece of machinery, you can do tremendous damage to it just because of the dust cloud mm-hmm. that flies up from it. And so we, there is nothing in the in the treaties in current law which says which tells us how we're going to, you know, pay attention to each other. We do have this lovely concept called due regard, um, which you know, to you, to, to non-lawyers, it makes common sense, right? Just be respectful of your neighbor. But uh, in, in in lawyer speak, it is a balancing test. So if you have a dispute on the moon, then you're going to go to court and the judge is going to say, well, we're going to balance your activity against the other activity, against the impairment, against what alternatives you had. And then, you know, I call this the cha-ching provision for lawyers. We can argue about that for decades. <laughs> um, okay. Can, I'm going to come back to that in a second about if there's a dispute
0: on the moon, because I have a a lot of questions about that but um going back to the outer space treaty that you mentioned um and just to reiterate it's the treaty that says no nation can claim sovereignty over the moon or any other celestial body
3: am i wrong in thinking remembering that, that is that a non-binding treaty though no this is this is binding and, and it it's is. actually okay yeah, it's it's considered now to be customary international law by many, um, which means that even if you haven't signed the treaty, then this this is um, uh, binding on you anyway. And it's really um, the concept that of, of the freedom of space, the freedom to do what you want in space, that space belongs to everybody. What's really interesting though, Magnan, and, and is when you think about um, treaties, um, somebody once said, uh, it's very easy for countries to agree, agree on words. Um, it's much, much more difficult for them to agree on how to interpret those words, mm. and so I would interpret Article Two of the Outer Space Treaty to say, well, a nation can't claim territory; it can't claim by sovereignty. But what about an individual or a company? Right, it doesn't necessarily say they can't. Okay, so that I mean, to, to me, that opens up um,
0: possibly one of the most important questions or areas of analysis that we should go through, Michelle, because. Um, I just have no doubt that in the future, private corporations are going to play an enormous role here, right, in the development of space technologies, voyages, et cetera. We already see that they are, are right, because NASA is not going back to the moon without the help of some uh, you know, very large private corporations. Um, and so, therefore, given what you said um, about that potential loophole in the Outer Space Treaty, does the 1979 moon agreement – which I just only recently learned about, cover that. Because I think it talks about the moon, that no part of the moon will become the property of any government or non-governmental organization or non-governmental entity.
3: Absolutely. The moon agreement does. It, it fills that gap very nicely. Um, it doesn't, to be very clear, it doesn't bar you from mining. It just says you're going to do it um, pursuant to some rules that we're going to come up with later. Um of course, the Moon Agreement has only been ratified by 18 nations, and one of them, Saudi Arabia, is actually withdrawing from it as of January 2024. And it's not, it, does not, it has not been signed by the United States, Russia, China. It's been signed by India, but not ratified. So although it is a binding treaty against those 17 nations that are still a part of it, it does not bind uh, the United States, Russia, China or India.
0: Okay. So what I'm hearing you say, Michelle, is that there's a sore lack of legal guidance or, you know, binding agreements when it comes to potentially mining the moon.
3: Absolutely. And, and what's important to remember, so the, the United States in 2015, President Obama signed a law that said, hey, we interpret Article 2 to say that we're not going to claim territory, but um, if you extract the resource... And then once it's extracted from that celestial body, it's yours. You own it. You can, you can eat it. You can buy it. You can sell it. You can build with it. You can do whatever you want with it. And that caused a lot of consternation throughout the international space law community. That You know, we're so big. Um, and, uh, but it's common sense. I mean, if we are going to expand beyond our Earth, we're not going to take bricks and mortar with us to build our habitats. We're going to need to use that regolith. And so it is. it has become sort of um, that interpretation has been accepted by um, the 20, uh, 29 now nations that have signed the Artemis Accords, which, which are some guidelines and principles hoping to help fill in the gaps of that Outer Space Treaty. And China has not objected to it either because China is going to need to use the regolith to build its habitats as well. Okay. So... Really basic question here. How would you
0: go about, uh, I don't know how to put it, parceling off the moon? Right? Because even just in what we've talked about already, there are different parts of the moon that I presume have different, quote-unquote, value when it comes to not only the resource that, resources that it has, you know, water, helium-3, that kind of thing, um, whether or not it gets sunlight for – I mean, I guess like the moon does rotate. But I, but there will be different parts of the moon that people or countries might want to um, uh, use differently. How do
3: we even begin to – to divide it up that i hate the the concept of divided up right i mean that just feels sorry divisive um I, you know that's a really hard question to answer people think oh the moon is so big it's the eighth continent well it, it is it's very large but as you noted all of the resources we want are, are focused in these small pockets. I like to tell people, look, we just need to hold humanity together for the next hundred or so years because we should be using the moon not to mine the moon of all of its resources, but to learn how to get out beyond the moon. So if, if we can keep the peace, because what do we fight about here on Earth? We fight about resources. If we can keep the peace and figure out that question... Um, on the moon, and also protect parts of the moon. You know, I don't want to look up and see a different moon because somebody's been mining the face of it. Um, and a lot of cultures have very strong bonds with the moon. It's looked like that for our entire existence. And so we really want to think, okay, how can we do this responsibly? And how can we make sure that countries that have don't have accessibility to the moon right now today or in 2030 or in 2040... How they aren't sort of quote unquote left behind, yeah, you know I actually it's I absolutely encourage you to tell me when you don't like questions that
0: I ask um It's not a problem with me because in fact, upon hearing you say that, I suddenly found that you know my question came from what I would say is the mental trap that most people, including treaty writers, might fall into, right that uh the examples that we unconsciously or unconsciously lean on are ones of the past um and in, in the past, there's been kind of a way of thinking like, well, this part belongs to you. This other part belongs to uh, this other country. I mean, look, colonialism is the perfect, you know, people's exhibit A on this. But even with the like the oceans, for example, we've got 100 miles off the coast of every nation that that uh, is bound by ocean. Well, that's that nation's sovereign territory over water. But then we have international waters after that. So there's a sense of ownership, at least over small portions uh, of the ocean. Now, that raises a whole bunch of problems when it comes to people wanting to do seabed mining uh, in the deep sea. But I, I just wonder, so if we're not going to think like that, on the flip side, Michelle, it sounds like a little bit of, <laughs> forgive the terrible pun, but pie in the sky to think that we could come up with a really different framework for humanity to work together uh, that doesn't lead to a sense of like trying to divide up resources.
3: So you're absolutely right, Megna. I mean, the entirety of human evolution has been about exploitation, right? I mean, that's how we've advanced. That's how we've evolved. That's that's you know we we've made our environment um, into what we can exist in comfortably, and it is going to be a very hard change uh, to to remove that concept of exploitation. Let's use the resources. Let's explore, but let's not use concepts like exploit, not—it shouldn't be mine, 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 mine. You know, I hate to think about, oh, there's $4 trillion worth of helium-3 on the moon. No, there's, there's a, a, a future for humanity on the moon. So we actually, at For All mankind, we believe there's a very sensible place to start. What do we all agree on here on Earth? We all agree how important it is to protect cultural heritage on Earth. We have um, heritage protection conventions. We have the World Heritage Convention. the the Great Wall of China, the Pyramids of Egypt, the Liberty Bell, these are things that belong to all of humanity. Um, And these are things that we recognize as human achievements. We recognize how important it is and how culture brings kinship. We look at each other. Think back to, uh, I know most of your listeners weren't alive for um, the Apollo 11 lunar landing, but 650 million people watched that. It brought humanity together. This is the power of space. Sure, there are a lot of minerals we can exploit. But the power of space is to look back and remember we did this. We did this together and we can move forward together. Hmm.
0: Well, we have to take a quick break here, uh, Michelle, but when we come back, I'm going to offer you a, a slightly different point of view on whether or not we all can agree on protecting cultural heritage as a, as a common human value. And then we'll also talk about, you know, are there terrestrial examples, um, other terrestrial examples that we might look to for either uh, inspiration on new, new agreements for the moons or examples of what not to do. So we'll cover all that when we come back. This is On point. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty and today we're talking with Michelle Hanlon. She's Executive Director of the Center for Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Space Law and Co-Founder and President of For All Moonkind, a nonprofit focused on protecting human cultural heritage. In outer space, and we're talking with Michelle because of the uh, massive renewed interest amongst many countries and companies in going to the moon, not just for space exploration, but potentially for resource extraction as well. So, Michelle, I think want to just be totally transparent and say my heart is with you and your vision for um, the fundamental purpose of space travel and exploration, right? The the purity of a mission of you know, um, goodness for all humankind and expanding our knowledge of the universe that can hopefully benefit all humankind. I mean, that's why uh, Neil Armstrong said, you know, one small step for a man, but one giant leap for mankind. That's the idea. Um, but we're not just talking about exploration and scientific research here because we are talking about potential resources you know i've read um other analysts who say this isn't like a space race this is like a gold rush really it's at the beginning the beginnings of a long-term gold rush and to me that puts a cloud over the uh, the hopeful vision right because anytime there has been a deep desire for resource extraction here on earth The gold rush is a great example. The idea that we all agree on the preservation of human cultural heritage just goes out the window, right? I mean, people's entire cultures were destroyed by westward expansion in this country. Um, You know, to this day, when we blast the tops off mountains or dig gold pits in Africa um, that are, you know, deeper than a skyscraper in New York. We're doing it while knowingly destroying the cultural heritage of the people who live there. So I just kind of have this nagging doubt that we can all get together and say, nope, when it comes to the moon or other celestial bodies, human cultural preservation is going to come first. Because I'm not sure Elon Musk cares that people on Earth Cultures on Earth have a long, you know, millennia-long relationship with the moon and don't want to see a different moon when they look up.
3: So, Magna, I will loan you my rose-tinted glasses any day of the week, Um, of course. (laughs) Please,
0: Uh, do I need them?
3: (laughs) Of course. And I think it was Neil Armstrong who said, you know, we will always have the technology. It's the human character that worries me. Um, th- there are bad apples everywhere, and we're not going to send only good people to space. And and right now, you know, I, I will I will tell you that I have um, spoken, and I'm very supportive of companies like Intuitive Machines and um, and iSpace from Japan and SpaceIL in Israel, who who have designs on the moon and wanting to create an economy using lunar resources. Um, and and for the most part, they respect our mission and and um, understand the importance of protecting that first footprint. There are going to be, be pe- there are people on Earth who don't care, like you, like you pointed out, it happens today. But we that is why we need strong institutions. Um, you know, yes, Elon Musk <laughs> it has the power of a of a large com- uh, country, but there is something to be said for public opinion and institutional, um, you know, traditions and customs, and by starting out. You know, we can do it here from Earth. It's very easy. All we need is a resolution that says, hey, we're going to protect the Apollo and the Luna and the Chandrayan and the Changa sites. And th- and that's enough to create a mood, a different, to mm. change that mood from exploitation to, oh, wait, there are things we need to think about protecting.
0: So let me needle a little further, Michelle, OK, um, since I spontaneously threw an Elon Musk in there. I mean, I, I don't think we're adequately even addressing this question. Um in our own near-Earth orbit, okay? Because here's why. I, I mean, forget Starlink and Ukraine. That's a whole other political story. But um, a couple of summers ago, I was in um, Zion National Park, right, uh, which is uh, also a night sky sanctuary as well. And I got up in the middle of the night looking at the spectacular Milky Way, and all of a sudden I see 40, looks like four, at least 40 satellites in a straight line right? Cutting right across the sky. I didn't know what it was. It looked really creepy and weird. I found out that uh, it was Starlink, essentially, and that um, later on, reading more into it, that a lot of uh, astronomers, et cetera, are saying it's ruining the night sky. But, you know, he could put those satellites up there, no problem. No one questioned it. So if if we're not even doing a good job regulating or coming to agreements about how private corporations can behave or what they can put into orbit right around Earth— What gives you the optimism that we could come up with those agreements for the moon?
3: So it's a balance. And I I am so sorry to hear that. I've never seen the Starlink train and I'd actually be really excited, although probably not in the dark skies park. Um, He did need to get um, licensed by the FCC, which in turn had to get a license from the International Telecommunications Union. So this is something that's very, very regulated. And the balance here is what is the benefit his Starlink is bringing to Earth? And again, I agree with you. Let's leave Ukraine aside. But they are. They, I have a colleague who just took Starlink down into um, some tribes in the Amazon who now can can actually use remote sensing data to see if poachers are encroaching on their native territory, on their indigenous mm. lands. So there are tremendous benefits to satellites. We have to figure this balance out. Um, I am a part of a working group looking at dark skies and how we protect them for both cultural reasons and to protect the planet. Because if we can't see beyond our orbit, we're not going to see that deadly asteroid that's going to make us, you know, send us back to the time of the dinosaurs. Uh, Everything is a balance. And I think as we mature and evolve as humanity, um, we have to make sure we're listening to the both sides of every story. Yeah, no, I hear that. And, and so we're not going to solve that balance right now. But it's something for
0: what you said is something for us to take away as, as uh, an important thing to think about is like who's involved, right, in making those decisions so that we do achieve a balance is, you know, uh, are U.S.-based uh, communications regulators enough? No, I, I don't think so, right? Um, so when it comes to the moon, we're probably going to have to have a lot more people at the table. So to speak. Um, so that's something to take away. But I want to also talk, Michelle, uh, about things that we have done here on Earth and whether any of them are good examples of what to do or what not to do when it comes to um, deciding how to um, move forward with exploration on the lunar surface. So what about Antarctica? And and I ask that because obviously it's in the planet's south pole. Uh, no native. Human populations, temperatures regularly well below zero. The sun doesn't really rise over the horizon for about six months out of the year. So, Michelle, we spoke with Joanne Yao, and she says these extremes have not kept explorers away. She's a senior lecturer in international relations at Queen Mary University of London.
4: Exploration and the scramble for Antarctica, if you will, didn't really start up until the last decade of the 19th century, where there was a call in one of the scientific societies in Europe saying, well, this is the last unexplored piece of Earth and we need to go and explore it. So then that precipitated a lot of expeditions down to Antarctica. What they were doing along the way, of course, was planting flags and claiming pieces. So the history of Antarctica is interesting in that science was very much embroiled and tangled with conquest and colonialism.
0: Yao says during the Cold War, some countries starting to started to get nervous about Antarctica because they didn't want the U.S. and the Soviet Union to compete over ownership or place nuclear weapons there?
4: So there was this kind of tipping point, I think, in the 1950s with the existing claimant countries all staking a claim and being a bit fearful that these two new superpowers would come in and make their own individual claims and upset the balance of power.
0: So in 1959, 12 nations signed the Antarctic Treaty, which stipulated that Antarctica be used for peaceful purposes only and that observations and research results from the continent should be exchanged and made freely available. But remember, Yao says this is not every country in the world working together.
4: The only countries that can engage with Antarctica and be part of the treaty are uh, countries that have... uh, The the term is conducted substantial scientific activity in Antarctica. So that was sort of the gatekeeping device that if you don't have the money or the resources to conduct substantial scientific activity in Antarctica, then you wouldn't be part of the political agreement.
0: To date, 56 nations have signed on to the Antarctic Treaty, but only 29 of them meet the substantial scientific activity benchmark and have any kind of decision-making power. Seven nations still have claims in Antarctica, even though the treaty freezes those claims. The countries are Argentina, Australia, Chile, France, New Zealand, Norway, and the United Kingdom. Joanne Yao worries that the Antarctic Treaty is not the best model to use to help decide legal questions about the moon and space exploration.
4: Right now, I think my worst fear is we're going to be successful in colonizing the moon and Mars. And then we're just going to export all of our inequalities and injustices from the Earth to the moon and to Mars. That in thinking of these places as utopian places where we can start again, we don't recognize that we're taking our baggage from Earth and we're just going to go and destroy another planet.
0: So she wonders if there's a way to frame outer space exploration without a colonial mindset. She says there are movements in domestic and international law to give legal personhood to aspects of nature, such as mountains and rivers.
4: A lot of attention has been given to a river in New Zealand called the Wanginui, which has been given legal personhood under New Zealand law. And it gets representatives from the Maori tribes, to represent it along with the government, the New Zealand government to represent the river, but they see things from the perspective of the river. What does the river want? What does the river need? What is good for the river? And then gives the river sort of legal standing in courts of law, where if somebody is dumping environmental uh, pollution into the river, then they can sue those companies in the same way anybody else with legal standing might sue uh, given harms. So Yao asks,
0: what if we applied this kind of thinking to the moon?
4: Why can we just not accept that the moon is its own entity and to offer it a bit more respect than to say, it's a, let's divide it up, it's a piece of our property, right? And then we can think about balancing sort of human perhaps needs, human interest, human scientific curiosity with, from the moon's perspective, of what is good for the moon.
0: That's Joanne Yao, Senior Lecturer in International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. So, Michelle, what do you think? Is uh, are the Antarctic treaties good, bad uh, examples? Is there anything in them that you think we should we could follow?
3: Magna, I don't think that they are a good example because again, it binds us to a terrestrial mindset. Mm. Um, and and it's one thing to think about Antarctica; it's a very closed-in area. We can get reach it very easily. It has finite resources. Our our high seas have finite resources. The moon has finite resources, but the rest of space is infinite. Um, and so, again, I, I talk about sort of holding humanity together until we have the technology to reach those infinite resources. Um, and then we will have no reason to fight about anything anymore. And so the Antarctic Treaty, um, you know, it, they, there's no, you're not allowed to mine in Antarctica. And that is something that uh, I don't think uh, makes sense for the moon, because we need to get to those resources in order to merely survive.
0: There will be no reason to fight about anything anymore. Michelle, I desperately want that to be true. I just don't think humanity. We don't think we have it in us. I don't. I think we're going to fight about stuff wherever we are,
3: well, hopefully, you know <laughs> we'll we'll always find other story. you know, they, I think going back to the Polynesians when they, you know, when they left one island and Strove rode off into the horizon because, you know, the brother was the chief now, and they needed to find their own land. Um, at some point, we'll have the technology where it's like, okay, I'm done with this one. I'm, you know, you, you've you got your community here. I'm going to go start another one on the next star over.
0: You know, I, when I thought I was going to be an astronaut, I was much more optimistic <laughs> than I no. am, am now, Michelle. I think this job in journalism has pounded that optimism out of me. So I'm going to cling to yours. I will cling to yours, Michelle. Um, we've just got a, a couple more minutes left to go before we have to wrap up today. And I wonder, you know, you know we're talking about... What a lot of people might think is, you know, are are a set of questions that aren't the most urgent ones in the world right now, right, because of what is actually going on on planet Earth. Um, But nevertheless, this technology is being developed. The exploration is going to happen. It's better to be ready before than after disputes occur, so, what are a couple of things that you think we should leave this conversation thinking about? Like, what are the areas in which there's current activity
3: regarding agreements uh, for the moon or space or areas that you'd like to see future activity? I think the most important thing, Magna, is that people need to pay attention. These are there are decisions being made right now by a very small population of people on earth about what's going to happen to the moon and who's going to how we're going to mine it, who's going to get there. And, and that's not fair and that's not right. And there's nothing to stop, particularly in the United States, voters from having their say. We we need everything that happens in space. Everything that we do on Earth is affected by things that happen in space. So you need to call your congressman and your senator and tell them you're, you're worried about orbital debris. You don't want... Um, the, the, the skies are, are the heavens blocked by our own garbage. We need to clean up our orbit so that we can actually get to the moon and build communities on the moon and beyond. Michelle, and can I need- just
0: jump in here? Who are the small number of people or small groups that are most influential right now? And how do we or how do we find out who they are?
3: So it's the policymakers from the governments of the United States, Russia, China, and India. And, you know, th- India really just got, you know, a full seat at the table. Um, and these are policymakers who are working through the UN Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space, working through the Artemis Accords, um, and making decisions. And again, they are I think for the most part they are good decisions. But I'm, I'm also, you know, one of this very small group of people who's actually thinking about space. We need more people... We want to hear from um, people here in Oxford and, um, and in Louisiana and anywhere in South America about what they think. You know, we had that wonderful concept of making them, giving the moon personhood. What do people think about that? That shouldn't be decided by a bunch of governments that are that are um, not getting input from their voters. That should be decided by the people of Earth. Hmm. Well, and at least for now.
0: As long as we look up every night, we do see that beautiful gem hanging in our sky, don't we? Absolutely. Well, Michelle Hanlon is executive director of the Center for Air and Space Law at the University of Mississippi School of Law. She's co-founder and president of For All Moonkind, a nonprofit focused on protecting human cultural heritage in outer space. And she's editor-in-chief of the Journal of Space Law. She joins us today from Oxford, Mississippi. Michelle, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so very much.
3: Magna, thank you. Really, really enjoyed this. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is on point.